I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Amanda Littman, the co-founder of Run For Something, an organization dedicated to helping recruit and support young people who want to run for office. Amanda joins me to talk about the recent spate of book bans, which have taken place all over the country. It's a movement driven by conservatives, and it's responsible for banning books by authors like Judy Bloom and Margaret Atwood. Though the majority of books that have been targeted are written by people of color and LGBTQ authors. Not only do conservative book bans rob Americans, and in particular American children, of a chance to learn about diverse experiences and cultures, but it also keeps them from viewing the world through a lens that's different from their own. The conservative myopic focus on things like book bans means that they've completely abandoned other legislative responsibilities, like working to curb gun violence, for instance, or improving healthcare. Amanda and I discuss the long-term implications of this. We also talk about how Run for Something's focus on local elections, especially school board elections, can help fight conservative attempts to shape and control the country's schools and libraries in ways that are simply undemocratic. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Amanda Littman. Amanda Littman, welcome. Thanks for having me. So I recently read a really worrying statistic about book bans. It was a report from the American Library Association. And according to their records, book bans were up by 38% in 2022 when compared to the previous year. But when I think about that number, the first thing that comes to mind is the incredible amount of energy and money and legislative time being poured into something that has, you know, no material benefit to the lives of children. Right. And that isn't anything new for conservatives. They haven't actually been focusing on legislation, especially you know, in relation to children. I mean, if they really wanted to help children, they would, you know, focus on guns, maybe in schools, or you know, they would have kept to, you know, vote to keep the child tax credit. <laughs> it was lifted, you know, millions of children out of poverty. But, you know, they're banning Judy Bloom and the diary of Anne Frank. And what happens is, is that leaves Democrats in a really precarious situation where they're actually fighting on two fronts. They're fighting to keep harm from spreading, right? And in this case, you know, with kids, right? And they're fighting for legislation to help, you know, constituents, right? And at this point, the legislation that they're passing, they're fighting for the entire country because no one else is passing legislation or even thinking about legislation. Do you foresee a time when Republicans will you know, begin to care again about having a legislative agenda, actually having policy. And what does that even look like? Like, how will that happen? Not the modern Republican Party, not the current iteration of the Republican Party. I mean, I think this is one of those things that really surprises people who maybe have checked out a little bit or even like donors and pundits who, you know, say we really need a bipartisan solution. Like we really need to like come together as two parties to unite to solve our problems. It's like, yeah, it would be actually really good for democracy if Democrats had a partner in governing. If the problem was that we can't disagree about how to get people health care or how to like best educate our kids or how to fully fund our schools, like it would be really excellent if there was a vibrant debate around how to best serve the American people. But like we are seeing this in Congress right now with the Republican Party's inability to pick a speaker. They don't have their shit together. <laughs> they don't <laughs> no. have a vision. And their disagreements are not about any particular policy. Their disagreements are fundamentally about whether or not the government should exist at all in many ways. So I don't think with the modern iteration or the current iteration of the Republican Party, we're going to get good faith partners in governance. But I do think there is an opportunity over the next election cycle, both 2023 and 2024, to really hold them accountable for the fact that they don't have a vision that they don't have an idea of what they want this country to look like. 
Right. And, you know, I can say this. I know that I'm looking at this through a biased lens as, you know, a progressive person, as a Democrat, that even if they did have a policy agenda, I probably wouldn't agree with it. Yeah. So if anything gets passed, it's from my side. <laughs> but, the, you know, I know that isn't a healthy government, right? I mean, so what materially do Democrats lose by being the only legislative you know, party in this country? Like, what do we have to lose here? I mean, often it seems like we're responsible for saving them from themselves. You know, again, back to the speaker vote, I was like, why didn't Democrats save Kevin McCarthy? Kevin McCarthy only maybe <laughs> will say that Joe Biden was legitimately elected in 2020. This is not a guy who's like an active fighter for democracy and is doing good work. The fact that we are often put in the position of having to save them from themselves makes us feel like and often seem like the responsible parents or the mean parents even scolding the naughty child. One, that's not how we parent anymore. But two, <laughs> that's just like not how you get things done for people. I think it puts us in a position where we then end up having internal party arguments against ourselves, which is sort of silly because none of this stuff is going to come to fruition anyway. Right, right. That's a really good point. These internal arguments. Now, I wonder if we could get bigger and better things if half of our energy wasn't spent kind of playing the parent, right? You know, bigger climate change packages, bigger anything, really. But let's talk about the books that are being banned, right? Again, looking at that report from the American Library Association, the vast majority of those books were about or by members of the LGBTQ community, you know, people of color, Black people. And that, again, is a new, you know, book banning has always targeted those marginalized groups. You know, you can look all the way back to Uncle Tom's Cabin or those books and pamphlets that were, you know, discussing abortion or about birth control. But women and, and people of color can vote now. <laughs> So it just doesn't make sense to me for conservatives, again, to target constituencies who will soon make up the majority of the voting electorate, right? So they're trying to suppress the history through these book bans. They're trying to suppress the history of women and people of color and Black people who they purport to want to gain their votes, right? And this just isn't logical to me. So what are they doing exactly? I mean, maybe they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> well, I actually don't think they need or want women and people of color's votes. They want to suppress the vote such that it's only really white men who count. I think more broadly, they're trying to make sure that what kids are learning in school, the kind of education they're getting, the kind of history they're learning, the exposure to diverse backgrounds and to their own stories is really limited. Because if you can shape what kids are learning in schools, you can shape the kind of citizens they grow up to become. Now, it's worth naming, this is wildly unpopular. Every Library, which is an organization that works in support of libraries, did a poll uh, last fall, and I imagine the numbers have only gone up here. Half of all voters, 50%, believe there's absolutely no time when a book should be banned. 41% think there's only rare times. Even 31% of Republicans said that there's absolutely no time when book banning is appropriate. Book banning is not popular. Book banning is very loud, but it's not popular. And it's actually not happening by a majority of people either. The Washington Post looked at all of the challenges to books that were put out last year and found that 60% of them came from just 11 people. In Florida, something like 70% came from just two people. This is not like a grassroots movement of, of millions standing up in support of banning books. This is a very, very, very loud, very, very, very small minority that is making life hell for millions. 
Yeah. Yeah. Let's look at that, actually, because I actually don't remember the genesis of this latest book band movement, right? It seems to materialize out of nowhere. And I know that Pan America did put out a report, and I'll put all of the links to the reports in the in the show notes, where they identified 50 organized censorship groups, right? 50 sounds like a lot, but it could be like two people <laughs> in a single group. Who, who knows? But it isn't the majority of people. But you know, 50 organized censorship groups are responsible for the book bans, right? And the, the latest book bans. And 73% of those were formed in 2021. So do we know who is behind those censorship organizations? Like, where did they come from? You know, who's behind them? You know, there's a theory of the case here that a lot of this started in 2020 when parents all of a sudden had more exposure to what their kids were learning in schools because COVID shut schools down. Right. There was a lot of anger about that, you know, whether it was right or wrong, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. the fog of the pandemic was a very confusing time to making decisions and parents got really put upon by that experience. And uh, there was a push in that spring of 2020, if you'll recall, to diversify after the murder of George Floyd, after the, the sort of rise of Black Lives Matter marches and protests to diversify the kinds of curriculums and reading lists and conversations at every level in corporations, in government, and in schools. These things are happening at the same time. Same third thing that's happening at the same time, uh, backlash against these things. Because for every push of progress, there is push against it, for better or for worse. I would argue in this case for worse. So you have end of 2020, early 2021, the rise of an organization called Moms for Liberty, which is a far-right parents group ostensibly fighting for parents' rights, which is a turn of phrase that basically means only white parents who get it to say. Parents have to decide what kids can and can't read, what kids can and can't access, um, what kids can and get access to the healthcare that they want or need. They really push discrimination and bigotry and ultimately are funded by Republican mega donors and working in partnership with Republican institutions that are trying to undermine public education. So over the last three years, what we've seen is a rise of Moms for Liberty and coordinated groups pushing things like at first it was anti-CRT in schools, which they were never teaching critical race theory in schools. This was a fool's errand. Then it became anti-vaccine mandates and it became big mad about the idea that there are litter boxes for kids dressed up as cats in a school, which like was never a thing. <laughs> now it's big mad about books because that's a clear, concrete action that they can give their voters and their activists ahead of a potential election. And what I think taking a step back, all of this is about is raising the salience of the identity of parent, because we have found in political research, social science research, neuropsych research has all found that the most important thing you can do to help break through the cognitive dissonance that comes with absorbing fake news. Like if you see a news report, you know, like, oh, this isn't real. But how do you deal with the cognitive dissonance that comes with something that is so obviously untrue, but that goes against your identity is to change the identity through which you're looking at. So can they make parent? mom, the highest level identity that someone is bringing with them to the voting booth. So that maybe they don't like Trump's tweets, maybe they don't like the racism, or maybe they don't, maybe they do like the racism, who knows, but they don't like that guy. But as a mom, they know they can show up for their kids. So they're able to process the campaign in a very different lens. That is ultimately the political goal of this project beyond undermining public education. And our job as folks on the other side is to not let them claim that territory and not let them claim that title without a fight. I want to talk about how how you go from a Facebook group of conservative people, moms, you know, who don't like Judy Bloom, 
to <laughs> actually getting books taken out of libraries and out of schools, right? Because a Facebook group doesn't have any authority. They don't have any legislative authority. So what's the process like there? Well, it really depends on where you are and what level of government you're challenging. But what they have been able to do is just grind the gears of a lot of these school districts by putting petitions in against a book, 10 books, two dozen books, three dozen books. That ultimately forces the school district to start to review every single one of the petitions. They take them very seriously. And if there are enough school board members on that board or in that governing body that is willing to engage in it, they start to take books out of libraries or shut down libraries altogether while they review all of these books again. You know, in Florida, where they passed really more broad stroke laws against certain kinds of uh, literature in schools, we've seen a number of counties simply turn their libraries off, shut them down, tape them down not allow kids in to check books out because they have to review every book on the shelf. And Moms for Liberty and the coordinated groups have been really intentional about trying to win school board races in the, at the same time in order to give themselves friendly advocates on the other side of the table. And that is where Run for Something is really trying to play a part here. We want to make sure that we are electing school board members who care <laughs> about making sure schools are safe places for kids to learn, to be themselves, to be free of discrimination and bullying. We want to make sure that schools are focusing and school boards are focusing on the issues that matter. Teachers pay, facility funding, arts and, st and science education. Everything else is a waste of time. Everything else is a waste of time. Yeah. So we're trying to make sure we can recruit and support candidates for as many of these school board races as possible to fight back against Moms for Liberty. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Florida earlier. I was looking at a map that showed where the majority of book bans are happening. And there was a map and I'll, I can't remember where I saw it, but I'll post it when I find it. Texas had the most book bans. No surprise there. Florida was second. I think Tennessee was third. And there were a few other smattering of states across the country. So almost all states, including my state, which is a very progressive state, Washington state, have had some book bans, right? There are very few states that haven't had any book bans, right? And I've seen videos of these school board meetings. I mean, some of them are just wild, right? And, you know, these heated debates over, you know, not just book bans, but masks and, you know, you know, trans kids playing on sports teams, right? I mean, they just, they just get out of control. And I know that you work with very young, very progressive mm -hmm. candidates. It just doesn't seem like a really friendly environment for these <laughs> candidates to go in. And I'm just curious, that who is the right person to run for, say, these school board positions? Well, let's take a step back and make sure we understand the landscape we're working in. There are more than 80,000 elected school positions across the country. In any given year, about 20 to 25 of them are on the ballot. About half of those elections happen in November. The other half happen throughout the calendar year. 75 to 80% of school board races cost $1,000 or less, 85% cost under $10,000. Most school board members right now are white. School board is the only level that has gender parity, and in fact, women outnumber men. It's about 55% women. Median school board member is 59, so it's often older. We are trying to change that. We want to bring in more young, diverse voices into these offices, um, knowing that they are going into often hostile environments. We have seen school board members get doxxed, get harassed, get attacked, have their physical and emotional safety threatened. So we're trying to build community and resiliency among them to make sure that at the very least, they're not alone and that we can have their backs. Are those demographics similar in districts where the majority of constituents aren't white, right? Or aren't, you know, I mean, do white board members and women dominate in school districts, let's say in you know, the middle of Chicago or in, you know, some other place, right? Is that true? Do you know that? I don't know off the top of my head, but I would assume that because a vast majority of school board members are white and and like statistically, it seems unlikely that a, a vast majority of school districts are majority white, although maybe 
that there is some disconnect there, but I don't know any of those numbers off the top of my head, unfortunately. Right. The reason I'm thinking about this is because there was a very strategic move on the part of conservatives, you know, shortly following Obama's election, Project Red Map, where they were trying to specifically get people on school boards across the country. And I would imagine that they were targeting any school board, right? Not just targeting school boards where, you know, these kind of ideas would be friendly. Um, totally. And actually, it goes back even before Project Red Map, which was 2009, 2010, as early as 1996. Ralph Reed, who was the leader of the far-right Christian movement to bring their values into government, has said, I'd rather have a thousand school board members than one president. They knew what they were doing. Um, this is a decades-long effort, and it is paying off in many ways. We have a chance to stop it. So what do you say to people who say, can you hear this a lot online, and I'm sure you hear this in in-person debates too, they say, well, you know, it's just a red state. It's just Texas. Why do we care about Texas? You know, we've got New York, we've got, you know, Washington State, we've got California. You live in Texas. This is the government you get. You know, the kids aren't going to see all the books. Like, what's the problem with that argument? What happens in a red state or a red county never stays in that red state or red county, both figuratively and literally. Texas is a good example because Texas is one of the biggest markets for textbooks. They are often getting line item veto. Their Texas State Board of Education in particular has line item veto power over what appears in those textbooks. They have done things like in the past change how we talk about the Alamo, change how we talk about African-American history, change how you talk about the Second Amendment in these textbooks, which then often get sold to other districts outside of Texas. So on a very like literal level, you are having crazy Texas Republicans determining what your kids could be learning in other states. We have also seen across the country school board challenges or school board book ban challenges that are successful in places like Texas pick up steam in other communities. If they work there, they'll work elsewhere. And in fact, the superintendent of education in Oklahoma, this guy, Ryan Waters, who is crazy and is partnering with Moms for Liberty is like a real culture warrior. He wants to put Bible verses in every public school. Oh, he's really cuckoo bananas. He has specifically said he's taking his cues from what he's seeing in other states. And Republicans in other states are watching him to see what he can get away with. If he's able to push the boundaries of what's possible, they can at least go a little bit further. The final piece here is that even in Florida, we just saw, I think earlier today, Seminole County has removed a couple dozen books from their libraries, not because they've been challenged in that county, but because other counties have seen them challenged, because other counties are dealing with this. What happens in these places never stays in these weird places. Separate from all of that, even if you're like, oh, you know, I think my kids will be fine, or I don't have kids in public schools, like, don't you think Texas kids deserve a good education? Exactly. Exactly. They're going to grow up to be the future voters, and they deserve a good education. Right. It's not fair to those families and those kids who are in those states, right? Whether they choose to stay or whether they choose to leave. If they, if, you know, you have a right to live anywhere in this country. If you like Texas, or you like Florida because you like the coast, great, stay there. And you have a right to have, you know, the same books and the same education as people on the East Coast or on the West Coast. So I agree with you there. But then also, you know, just anecdotally, I know it's true that they spread because frankly, when I looked at that map, I was surprised to see that there have been book bans, again, in my very liberal, very progressive state of Washington. And the same thing, I saw a similar map with abortion bans, which is a very good thing to compare because I think a lot of people, you know, naively assumed that that would stay, you know, those bans, local level bans would stay in those red states. And it didn't. Like, if you look at a map of where abortion bans have happened, it's all over the country, right? It's happened all over the country. And like the reason abortion is now, you know, at threat nationally is because it started in a red state, because Mississippi pushed a state legislative law, pushed a law through their state legislature to ban abortion that made its way to the Supreme Court and then became a national consequence. 
what happens in a red state never stays in a red state. Yeah. You know, I've talked to you a few times over the years and one of the things, and forgive me for being repetitive, but one of the things I always lament about is the fact that we are running from behind. And, you know, over the years, we're always running from behind. And I was, again, surprised to see that even in this case, we're still kind of running from behind because there is this organization, I think it's called the 1776 Project PAC, right? They were launched in 2021, around that same period we were talking about. They you know, have lots of candidates that they're supporting for school board. And I don't think we have that many resources in this yet, as many as they have. Is that true? Totally true. You know, the, the environment around education on the left is really complicated, in part because there's a lot of different ways to be a Democrat and engage in public education. And most of our infrastructure is set up around urban environments, around Chicago, which is newly going to have an elected school board around Philadelphia, New Orleans, Berkeley, LA, Miami. Most of the fights that the Republicans are ready to have and excited to have around school boards is happening in suburban and rural communities. Run for Something's 50-state school board strategy is a specific measure to try and combat that. So we're trying to build the infrastructure that would allow us to work in as many of these school board races as possible everywhere that public education is under threat, which unfortunately <laughs> is everywhere. And that's just not where the left has been set up over the years. So what did you mean by Chicago is going to newly have a school? What's happening in Chicago specifically? So Chicago is going to be electing their school board for the first time in quite a long time. And actually, I want to be really precise in how I describe it. So I'm going to look it up. So Chicago is moving to an elected school board for the first time in November 2024. They're currently going through the redistricting or like zoning process. And this is pretty new. The first election for half of the 21-member board is going to take place in November 2024. The remaining members will be appointed by the mayor, as they have been over time. Um, two years later, the entire board is going to be elected. The state legislature is responsible for drawing the map of the districts. They have until you know April of 2024. And this is a really important process because elected school board members, as opposed to appointed ones, have a chance to be held accountable by the voters over how schools are going. So I think it's a really exciting development for the city of Chicago. That is exciting. So elected versus appointed. And so are you, is run for something involved in this at all? You We're know, absolutely going to be candidates? looking to help recruit candidates for these races. Excellent. Excellent. You know, you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to go back to about the kind of emotionality. You didn't use those words, those are my words. The emotionality behind getting parents behind these efforts, right? Elevating mom as this kind of central character in electoral politics, you know, the person that we need to help the most, the mother, right? Kind of elevating mom, you know, and it's actually easy to get people to rally around motherhood and children, right? Especially when you are pushing the idea that harm is potentially being done, right? Like I was listening to something the other day and conservatives, you know, they use the same wording. Let's just talk about, you know, trans kids. They say, you know, they're mutilating children, (laughs) And they all say that they're mutilating children, right? Which is not happening. You know, they've chosen their words carefully. And you know, people think that like, well, we've got to help these poor children. Then the moms whose kids are being mutilated. And they, they don't think any further than that, right? But, you know, the same thing with book bans. These children are reading these horrible things about Anne Frank and they feel guilty. And so it's easy for people to get on the bandwagon of protecting your children from harm when the opposite is happening. Do we have messaging, counter messaging that's equally as emotional, but factual, <laughs> you know, to, to, to get people passionate about 
protecting kids, because even just saying it aloud now, protecting kids from book bans, it doesn't have the same impact of protecting children from reading harmful material. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think first it's worth defining what we are saying is, is important. And I think we've seen a lot of good message research about freedom to learn, freedom to read, freedom to love, freedom to be who you are, freedom to go to school safely, freedom for the parent not to be worried that their kid is going to come home or not come home at all when they leave for school in the morning. And as important as what we're saying is who's doing the saying. They have really been able to build up a stable of compelling messengers on this. It's often white women parents, white moms, who can make a compelling case to their peers. I say this as a white woman and a mom, like, doesn't work on me, but (laughs) there is an intentional choice of messenger there. And one of the things that we're trying to combat is making sure that we have compelling messengers on our side who can make the case honestly, personally, specifically, who can talk tangibly and tactically about what they're doing in their community locally, because it's not compelling to hear Joe Biden talk about this. There's not much he can do. Book bans are theoretically already kind of counter to the First Amendment. It's like, all right, Mr. President, like now what? What we need are compelling messengers on the ground who can speak to specifics in every community and can speak in a way and in the places where her parents are. Yeah. So on the flip side of that, as a mom with school-aged children, you know, I know that a lot of really younger people are getting involved in politics. And I know that Run for Something focuses on a very specific demographic, I think under 41. It's not compelling to me. Well, it is compelling because I follow these issues, but I'm just saying, let's just say some other mom out there. It may not be as compelling to a mother to see a Gen Z person who is freshly maybe out of college, who doesn't have the experience of, you know, fighting for a kid to keep their library, you know, stocked. How do you find candidates who can appeal to people who may have had a life experience, specifically in in relation to book bans in schools? We are absolutely still working with people 40 and under, and I think it's really, really important to bring young voices into leadership, especially where maybe they're not parents themselves, but often recent students, especially when you're talking about schools and school safety. Gen Z is the generation that grew up doing school shooting drills, like school shooting drills since kindergarten. That's really important to have as part of our leadership. And I really think it's important to name. We do not think that it should only be Gen Z or millennial leadership, but we are very clearly left out of the conversation right now, or left out of leadership right now. So we want to fix that. We want to bring a diverse group of voices to the table. And we have found that especially when young people are running and they're running against boomers or even older folks who really don't have kids in the school system anymore, they're able to bring a really exciting energy to the race that others just can't always share. So aside from school board, what are some other races that we should be focused on right now? I think we really got to pay attention to state legislative races. We're just a couple weeks out from the Virginia state legislative race, which will determine whether abortion is accessible um, in the last state in the South, down in Virginia. We got to look at city council and municipal elections, thinking about the cost of housing. That's a locally determined issue, whether or not we can build more affordable, make it easier for people to live where they want to live and stay where they want to live. We got to take a look at things like DAs, as you named, both for what they can do on criminal justice, but again, what they can do to circumvent (laughs) some of these dangerous state laws, like they have prosecutorial um, discretion. And of course, we always, always, always have to be looking at positions that can directly affect election administration. So city and county clerks, uh, recorder of deeds, in some places, tax assessor uh, might have something to do with voter registration or election administration. So Run for Something is working on all of these, plus many, many more really to build power from the ground up and make people's lives better. 
you know, the electoral process is a long process, right? And we're, you know, we're close to 2024, but we're pretty far out. And who knows when we're going to have parity here to match conservatives on these school boards, right? If you're a person who's listening right now and you're concerned about the bans, what can you do right now just as a constituent, as a voter to help kind of slow down or stop these bans? Go to the meetings. Go to the meetings in person if you can on Zoom. Many of them are held virtually if you can't. You'll be surprised at one, how few people are there and how loud your voice can be in that mostly empty room. And, you know, think about running for office yourself. Even if your school board isn't up this year, it might be up next year or the year after. Start to have those kinds of conversations. You can go to runforwhat.net to look up what offices are available to you to run for in the next year. We will help you get started and help you along the way. But it is never too early and very rarely too late to start thinking about a campaign. Excellent. Runforwhat.net. Okay. Well, Amanda Littman, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining me today. And thank you. I always learn so much from you. Thanks for having me.